Welcome to this episode of Physicians Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Rachel Giles from Medical Medical Publishers in collaboration with Physicians Weekly. And yes, this week I am grateful to have my voice at all after three days of viral laryngitis. Welcome to Physicians Weekly. This week, women's health has been all over the news, and that will be the topic of this week's in-depth episode. On May 8th through the 14th, it was also the National Women's Health Week, during which the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Offices on Women and Health, the OWH, is encouraging women and girls to reflect on their individual health needs and take steps to improve their overall health. The Physicians Weekly Podcast provides thought leader insights on the latest medical news, clinical trial coverage, and advances in medicine and healthcare. One event that was very characteristic for this week that will probably remain in my memory for the rest of my life was a leaked draft opinion from the Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito. And this report revealed that the court is likely to overturn the 50-year-old protection of abortion rights granted under the 1973 Roe v. Wade case. A few days later, the Women's Health Protection Act, which was a Democrat-led bill which would effectively codify a right to abortion, failed to pass at the Senate as expected. And within minutes of the vote, President Joe Biden released a statement that said, quote, this failure to act comes at a time when women's constitutional rights are under unprecedented attack. And it runs counter to the will of the majority of American people, end quote. But whatever your opinion may be concerning the potential reversal of Roe versus Wade, women's health remains a very major problem in the United States. In this episode, we first take a look at maternal mortality in the United States. The rate in the U.S. is roughly 20 maternal deaths per 100 births, which is about 700 deaths among the approximately 4 million women who give birth each year. Those statistics are not going down, but actually up for the last 15 years. And American women today are 50% more likely to die because of pregnancy-related health issues than their mothers were. We interviewed Dr. Charles Jaynes, Vice President of the Clinical Operations at the OB Hospitalist Group, to understand the many factors that cause pregnancy and childbirth to remain unusually risky in the United States. Based on recent CDC data, the leading causes of pregnancy-related deaths are cardiovascular conditions, infection, and hemorrhage. With hypertension and heart disease being a major contributor to maternal morbidity, our second interview in this episode takes a deeper dive into the factors that can facilitate timely detection of cardiovascular disease, particularly in women. To that end, Physicians Weekly Senior Editor Marta Kelly interviews Dr. Carlos Irabaran of the Kaiser Permanente Division of Research in Oakland, California, about his recent study from the Minerva cohort, which is the multi-ethnic study of breast arterial calcium gradation and cardiovascular disease, the Minerva cohort study, which included over 5,000 women. So one technical note, the sound quality at the very beginning of Dr. Irabaran's interview is not that great. Apologies for that, but be patient. We resolved the technical issue pretty quickly. So that second interview, they talk about how in the past decade, total and premature cardiovascular deaths among women in the United States have increased by 20,000 between 2009 and 2019. In addition to mortality, morbidity related to cardiovascular diseases has also increased, and particularly among younger women. 
In the arteriosclerosis risk community study between 1995 and 2014, we note that the proportion of hospitalizations for acute myocardial infarction in young adults aged 35 to 54 years increased for women in contrast with the decline in men. But first, we talked with Dr. James about maternal mortality. One note about Dr. James' interview, he refers to ACOG a few times, and that is an abbreviation for the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. And he also refers to the monthly journal published by that professional society, which most doctors call the Green Journal, so that you know what they're talking about. Anyway, enjoy listening. Thank you, Dr. Janes, so much for joining us. Could you tell me a little bit about yourself and what your interests are? Yes, I'm a OBGYN doctor by training. I have practiced for 49 years and completed my last shift last week as a actively practicing physician. I'm now at the 30,000 foot view as a senior vice president for clinical operations for OB Hospitalist Group. You know, one of the facts that I'm really stumbling over here is that American women today are 50% more likely to die because of pregnancy-related death issues than their mothers were. Could you dive into that a bit deeper and give me some some more information about that? Why is that? Nobody's exactly sure why. I will tell you that starting in about 2002 or so, we noticed the trend. California was very quick to identify the negative trend in maternal mortality and to do something about it, and they've had good success with that. The rest of the country has followed more slowly, and indeed, there has been a doubling in maternal mortality. In Texas, where I live, in 2021, the rate was about 31 to 32 per 100,000 live births, as opposed to California, where the overall rate was around four and a half to five per 100,000 live births. So definite increased trend across the United States. It has one of the greatest, it has the greatest maternal mortality of any fully developed Western civilization. So uh, it's, it's a disturbing trend. What do we think causes it? Part of it is access to care. Part of it is change in population risk factors, such as obesity and hypertension. And part of it is probably something to do with ethnicity and, you know, is everybody treated the same? So it's multifactorial. It's deep dives have been done in multiple states. The best thing that's come out of it is twofold. Number one, the states now, they have, it has their attention and they are responding appropriately with review boards that in review all maternal mortality cases. So anywhere from pregnancy inception to one year, 365 days following pregnancy or delivery, if you died in that time frame, then you're registered in one of these morbidity mortality uh, investigation committees and that data is looked at and assigned a cause and preventable, not preventable, okay? In California, as an example, I think it was 2005, they identified a mortality rate of all ethnicities, I think it was 16 per 100,000 live births. In women of color, women of Hispanic origin had the lowest, Caucasians the next highest, but in women of color who were African-American, almost 2.5 times greater risk of maternal mortality in that group. They then set about with three things that have made a huge difference in California. Number one, they instituted uh, statistical analysis and data collection. 
Number two, they instituted protocols to be able to standardize care for things like postpartum hemorrhage and hypertension. And number three, they instituted accountability. And in doing so, again, 2021, for Hispanic women in the state of California, the maternal mortality rate was about 4.5 per 100,000. I think it was just above that for Caucasian women, but for black women, it was still in the eight per 100,000 range, still double or almost double what the Hispanics were. So definite improvement in that one narrow focus. So what's happened is now, for example, in the state of Texas, ACOG, which I'm a, a maternal level surveyor for ACOG, and ACOG has a program called the Level of Maternal Care Designation. That was instituted by statute in the state of Texas in 2015. And September the 21st of 2021, the Texas State Department of Health took over the administration of Medicaid funds related to pregnancy care for the entire state. And it was based on four levels of maternal care, level one through four. Level one centers are like a birthing center or a a rural community hospital with a a low volume of deliveries uh, attended by perhaps midwives, family practice doctors who do OB or even OB-GYNs. A level two was a specialty hospital that you find in most cities, population less than 150, 200,000, you have specialists in that hospital, but you don't have the highest level of nursery facilities, et cetera. Level three and level four institutions are institutions that uh, are capable of providing for high-risk patients. A level three can cover probably 95% of the high-risk population and the morbidity and mortality that occurs there. A level four institution is the highest level and should be able to provide care for any female. They have defined those well. They have surveyed every hospital in the state of Texas, assigned it a designation, and now we're focused on training based on what are called the AIM protocols for ACOG that induces standardization. We're data collecting. We're getting accountability through what we call QAPI or Quality Assurance Performance Improvement and Peer Review Committees at each one of those institutions with a report back function to the state as necessary. So we're mimicking what's happened in California. And, and there are multiple states across the union where that's happening at this point in time. And I'm confident that a decade passes and we improve in that sector as well. We understand more about implicit bias that does things like limit access to care for certain populations, then we're going to see an improvement in maternal mortality and morbidity. Thank you. And you're using California as a comparator here, but is Western Europe comparable to California? Yes, ma'am. And and the thing about Western Europe, they have a, a delivery system that's different than the American delivery system. They tend to have more socialized medicine. Their delivery system in terms of clinicians in a lot of places in Europe, the primary obstetrical care is delivered by certified nurse midwifery. And the backup is a specialist who is a OB-GYN doc, like we would have in this country. I personally, my bias is, and the bias of a lot of people like me is that that's the model we need to move to so that you have universal access to obstetrical care, okay, either through private funding or through government funding. You have large clinics that are run primarily by mid-level providers like midwives or nurse practitioners, but appropriate protocols for how you deliver prenatal care and oversight by specialists involved in OBGYN. 
And then you have delivery systems within hospitals that are scalable systems. So just like Texas level one to level four, so that you can always transfer a patient to a higher or to the highest level of care if that need arrives in either in the event or if some high risk factor is identified in prenatal care. And so you mentioned before that it seems to be a mixture of nature and nurture. And some of the elements for maternal comorbidity are like asthma, vascular disease or cardiovascular disease. Those are important in the outcomes of pregnancy. Could you discuss a little bit more about what data we have? We have we have excellent data. I mean, there there has been a true trend over the last thirty years to a more morbidly obese population of pregnant women. So obesity is a definite risk factor because it adds to the risk for diabetes and hypertension. Certainly, have seen a dramatic increase in gestational diabetes and pregestational diabetes. Again, probably related back to. Uh, insulin resistance and obesity, which are tied together. We know that. That also pertains to hypertension, but we also recognize that preeclampsia, for example, is a marker for women who have preeclampsia or at a significant multiple increase of risk for having hypertensive and cardiovascular disease later in life. So these are called adverse pregnancy outcomes. So if you have obesity, you have hypertension, you have diabetes, all of those things are tied to an increased morbidity and mortality after age 40, secondary to cardiovascular disease. Right. So the ultimate way of grabbing this situation and turning it around would be to address both the maternal comorbidities as well as the system in how these, these high-risk pregnancies are assessed and uh, stratified. Yeah. So let me take you through a typical patient scenario. A patient who walks into the hospital right until recently worked as a hospitalist. Uh, presents to the OMI emergency department and has a no prenatal care. Perhaps she's had some uh, time on the street, had multiple drug exposures. Uh, she comes in, she's seen. We do our best to standardize, regardless of who she is or where she came from, standardize the care, get her into the system, treat her. So she's got hypertension. She's got preeclampsia. And she's got high-risk preeclampsia, severe preeclampsia, and so we treat her with the appropriate medicines to prevent seizure. We get the baby delivered, and then we treat her afterwards for hypertension. In the present-day world, thankfully in Texas, Medicaid follow-up has been extended from the traditional six weeks out to one year. And we're able to now get those patients into resources for follow-up, since as a hospitalist, we don't provide that for follow-up hopefully, where they can have long-term care for their hypertensive disease. Now, again, there are gaps in that service because in a patient in that circumstance, she's got one year of coverage, but a lifetime of risk. And so that's one of the disequities that needs to be addressed to really truly turn around morbidity and mortality part of this. But Everybody does their best to get access to care, and that is improving, okay? And I'm, I'm pleased to report that, you know, the recognition of implicit unintended bias is much more in the forefront. There was an article that came out in this month's Green Journal from the American College that we talked to uh, our group of site directors for over 60 programs about yesterday that recognizes that in New York City, New York State, 
the difference between high-performing obstetrical hospitals and low-performing obstetrical hospitals in terms of maternal morbidity and mortality, they identified six factors that set those two apart. And those six factors that led to quality were things like an administration that was involved in quality of care, that they were part of that discussion. And they put those resources out for the nursing staff and the medical staff to have those resources to care for women of any you know, any financial uh, standard. The, the Another thing was that there was good communication between the doctors and the nurses on the unit. Now, for example, on the unit where I did, until recently worked as a hospitalist under our, our operation, I'm expected to have a situational awareness of every patient on that unit to be an emergency first responder. We use an OB emergency department that's a subset of the main emergency department under EMTALA. So when a patient comes to the hospital for an unscheduled visit to labor and delivery and she's pregnant, she is seen by a clinician capable of performing a medical screening exam, determining if there's an emergency and then initiating appropriate care. And those factors were identified in this study, which draw a nice parallel to what we do as hospitalists to deliver care, but it's much more than that. If you have a system where you're getting appropriate prenatal care and it's properly sourced and properly financed, and then you present to the hospital, you've been identified for risk factors, you come to the hospital, you get care by someone who applies standards and has accountability for their, their care delivery, not based on volume, but based on the quality of care you deliver, who is trained to recognize that there is implicit bias in all of us, and we have to understand what that is and how do you overcome that to provide optimal care. And then those clinicians recognize, okay, this patient had preeclampsia. I need to sit down with her before she leaves the hospital and explain to her that she's got a lifelong risk and and we need to somehow get her engaged in follow-up. And then you provide care within 72 hours after that initial discharge visit to make sure her blood pressure is okay, and you continue that care out for a year in some format, such as a federally qualified health clinic where she can follow up and have good access to care. You get all those things working correctly, and you have people in the hospital that are trained to take care of obstetrical emergencies like postpartum hemorrhage, retained products of conception, hypertensive disease, shoulder dystocia, all those things we deal with as hospitalists in a very concentrated daily situation, and it really improves outcome. And we have data to show that. I mean, that's one of the things about the company that I work for that I dearly love and admire is that we collect the data. So our system is not driven by the volume that we see, but rather by the quality that we provide, the kind of quality care. And our clinicians are are accountable to that. That's evidence-based advocacy. It's the best sort. Yeah. Yeah. I I will tell you that I'm optimistic. I see a change on the horizon in this country. I spent 34 years in the private practice of medicine, and I was blessed to be in a a large group of 10 OBGYNs, and we really worked hard to provide quality care to all comers. I'm proud of that. Uh, What I'm involved with now is really we're working on trying to change the system to address the issue of quality care to address the issue of recognition of bias and how that works to negative outcome and and to provide good care to any female, regardless of race, creed, color, or financial capability. Thank you very much for your time. Appreciated. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, my pleasure.
today with Dr. Carlos Irabaran, research scientist, Kaiser Permanente Northern California Division of Research, who's written a paper on breast arterial calcification, a novel cardiovascular risk enhancer among postmenopausal women, which was published recently in Circulation Cardiovascular Imaging. Good day. How are you? Delighted to be here with you, Marco. Okay, thank you. I'm going to raise this volume up a little bit. What was the impetus for your research? In other words, what what makes breast arterial calcifications association with a higher risk of CVD disease an important topic to study? So to give you the first and larger context, we, we know that cardiovascular disease is the number one cause of death, mortality, in both men and women in the United States and worldwide. So, and we also know that cardiovascular risk assessment for tools that we currently have are vastly inadequate, particularly for women. So there's a critical need to develop new markers of risk. And a development that we have known for more than 30 years is that breast arterial calcification detected in mammograms do correlate with risk of cardiovascular disease. We have seen those studies done in cross-sectional fashions. The impetus of the study was to overcome limitations of prior research in this area, particularly in terms of design. Our study is longitudinal. Our study has a very large sample size that overcomes limitations of prior research on very small number of women. And also, this is a contemporary cohort in the sense that we relied on digital state-of-the-art mammography as opposed to from outdated modalities of imaging. And the last point that I'd like to highlight is that our cohort was highly diverse ethnically. We made a concerted effort to recruit women of ethnic minorities to overcome this limitation of prior research. Can you briefly explain what you and your colleagues set out to determine with the study, how, how you went about conducting it? Yes, so this was a 12-year journey. Started out applying for funding at the NIH. We were fortunate enough to get a grant to conduct the study. We then, over the period of two years, starting in 2012, we collected all the mammograms that were part of the screening program at Kaiser Permanente in Northern California and nine facilities, and we created a very large cohort of potentially eligible women into the study. We then recruited uh, over 5,000 over the next two years, 5,400 to be exact, and those women were consented into the study, invited to attend a clinic visit where they uh, responded to uh, self-administered questionnaires, we performed a Really, very detailed protocol of uh, measurements, and we collected blood sample for future biomarker studies. At the same time, in parallel, all the mammograms were transmitted after uh, removing personal identifiers to the University of California, Irvine, Department of Radiological Sciences, where my colleague Sabi Malloy read the mammograms and generated a calcium score for each woman. Is a novel methodology that his labs developed. So then we merge all the data, the imaging, the clinical, and then we perform uh, six years of passive surveillance of the cohort through the Kaiser Permanente electronic health record. So we knew women who came in for and were hospitalized for, for myocardial infarction, strokes, heart failure, or peripheral arterial disease, and that became our endpoint analysis in the study that was reported last month in circulation CVD imaging. 
Uh, what findings from your study are important to stress to our physician readers, particularly uh, OBGYNs and cardiologists? Yes. So the main findings of the study were as follows. So after adjusting for the effect, uh, statistically for the effect of uh, other risk factors, women who presented with breast material calcification and mammograms were at 51% increased risk of uh, coronary heart disease or stroke and at 23% increased risk of a global measure of cardiovascular disease, which also included, besides heart disease and stroke, heart failure or peripheral arterial disease. So really the take-home message here is that we have a universal test. All women can come in for mammography for breast cancer prevention. Now we have this uh, other piece of information from the mammogram that can inform future risk of heart disease and stroke. So it really is is a test that will come at no additional cost because it's already done for breast cancer prevention and no additional radiation. What is the implication of your research? How would you like to see physicians, again, particularly OBGYNs and cardiologists, incorporate your findings into their practices? Yes, so this study uh, is a non-randomized study. It's an observational epidemiological study. It has moved the needle quite a bit towards making this a, uh, a game changer. In other words, the adoption of presentation classification assessment and, and reporting to inform risk of physical vascular disease. But we know that there's a, a need still to perform clinical trials to demonstrate the clinical effectiveness of BSC, breast classification assessment and reporting, before we can really adopt this and incorporate this into, into national guidelines. Okay, well, that leads into my next question about future research in this area. What needs still exist? Uh, what would you like to see future research focus on in this area? Yeah, so besides this uh, clinical trials that need to be conducted to prove the clinical effectiveness of assessment and reporting, I think it's important to also establish the clinical utility of VAC in younger women, women under the age of 60, because our study, the Minerva study, recruited women between the ages of 60 and 79 at baseline at the screening mammogram. So we could not establish the utility of VAC assessment in younger women. So this study is something that we're actually planning and hope to conduct in the next few years. The second area that I think deserves uh, future research is understanding the biology behind breast calcification. In other words, more basic type research, looking at things like DNA predictors of breast calcification, RNA sequence experiments, looking at biomarkers, comparing BAC with measures of arterial stiffness, uh, because bursatile calcification it occurs in the intima of, of arterial wall, not in, the, not in the layer that's in contact with the blood, as occurs in atherosclerosis uh, that we do see in people with hyperlipidemia and smoking. So this is a very intriguing type of calcification that it's, at the moment it's, we think is more related to stiffening and arterial stiffness pathways. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate this. I appreciate your time. Well, that was our episode with a special focus on women's health. I hope you learned something that could be useful in your practice. Stay safe and stay healthy. Thanks for listening to Physicians Weekly. Physicians Weekly is produced in collaboration with Medicom Medical Publishers and Physicians Weekly. 